Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Dr. Weinstock calling and talking about low-dose naltrexone and sarcoidosis therapy. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri in the United States, and this has been a very exciting venture as part of my general treatment that I use with low-dose naltrexone for a variety of conditions. And I think it holds promise and needs further study. Next, my disclosures show that, of course, low-dose naltrexone is off-label in country. We don't have approval by the FDA to use it uh, or promote it, per se. So this is an educational um, discussion. And um, this is something, however, um, I've been dealing with since 2005 and have a great deal of experience with and wanted to share my limited but interesting experience with sarcoidosis with you. Next. So the talk will be broken down into basic pharmacology and sarcoidosis with respect to the pathophysiology of sarcoidosis and um, four different cases and the different aspects of the drug therapy in this disease. Now, I know that many of you are well-versed in low-dose naltrexone pharmacology, but I'm going to try to highlight where this comes to play, in particular, into sarcoidosis. So it's very interesting that endorphins are such a prominent molecule in our body that they're producing a number of different cells, not only in and around pain cells, but in uh, endocrine cells as well. Um, and uh, there are a variety of different ones, each having different effects on the body. Metankephalin is thought to be the most important one, and it has to do with rate control of cells growing or not growing, and it's called the opioid growth factor, and it's also responsible for development of receptors on cells. Metankephalin uh, regulates cell growth uh, not only uh, immune cells, but cancer cells as well. And this important aspect of the immune system is, is uh, interesting because it's found that in general, immune disorders, which would include sarcoidosis, can occur and often occur with low levels of endorphins. Endorphin receptors are found in many different places. One would normally think, oh, the endorphins are just going to be on pain receptors, um, on opioid receptors uh, in nerves in the central nervous system or peripheral nervous system. But in fact, there's a whole network uh, in the gut, uh, which is very important for motility, um, control, modification, um, and it's, this is where we 
changes uh, with affecting irritable bowel syndrome, motility, and inflammatory bowel disease. But also, most importantly, with respect to sarcoidosis, lymphocytes are affected because there are receptors of opioids on the lymphocytes. And now, low-dose mechanism of action. So this is where LDN blocks the opioid growth factor receptors for a few hours. And now that uh, creates a situation of a rebound effect. And during that time, the cell senses that there's there's not enough Uh, endorphins, and there's a revving up of the mechanisms leading towards uh, the opioid growth factor becoming active. As soon as it's unleashed by the naltrexone going away, the endorphins rebound in production and the receptors increase, and then we have more activity, and thus Uh, the opioid growth factor um, can regulate cell growth and immunity. So the immune regulator, metencephalin is the immune regulator. It binds to the receptors on immune cells. And here's a very interesting concept that's been shown experimentally that it activates the T regulocyte cells, in particular, the ones with CD4 activity. So it suppresses and regulates the CD4 lymphocytes, and thus it balances immunity because when the CD4 lymphocytes go crazy, then we have uh, an inflammatory picture. LDN mechanism action, this will regulate T cells, B cells, and the B cells are responsible for antibody production. Natural killer cells are also regulated, and there's interleukin secretion factors in, and the Th1 balance changes to a Th2, which decreases the autoimmune profile. Additional mechanism of actions for involve toll receptors. Now, toll receptors are receptors that could be on the mucosa and can be on the uh, inflammatory cells on top of nerve cells. So these are microglia cells that are activating pain receptors. Now, in the lining of the gut, uh, perhaps not so important for sarcoidosis, although we really don't know exactly where the mechanism of action is for sarcoidosis, whether it's an inhaled antigen or perhaps something that's swallowed and, and or changed by an altered microbiome. It's really not been studied enough. But In any event, LDN decreases the permeability of the gut. Could this work elsewhere? Decreasing permeability of the blood vessels. Um, That's been um, shown with naltrexone in general. 
um, uh, and therefore may play a role in the lungs. So uh, bacteria um, might play a role um, elsewhere, and if LDN blocks it translocating, um, or the cells or the cell uh, material to translocate, that could be helpful in decreasing the autoimmune profile. And then finally, um, if it blocks the immune cell, the macrophage or the microglia cell on top of the on top of the nerve cell, that will decrease pain. And we know that pain is increased in autoimmune disease, and that will uh, be highlighted in two of my patients. Finally, uh, LDN, we could summarize by saying on flight 10 that LDN increases endorphins, which reduce T and B cell production, decreases cytokines and antibodies. It shifts to a less autoimmune picture with respect to the Th1 and Th2 pathways. It blocks toll-like receptors or microglia, and also, and there's some evidence that there's mast cells involved in modulating inflammation and sarcoidosis, it blocks the toll-like receptor on mast cells, which theoretically could slow down activity in sarcoidosis. Okay, so let's get into the nitty-gritty of sarcoidosis, basic pathophysiology, and then we'll go into my experience in, in four patients. So sarcoidosis is a granulomatous disorder with T cells and macrophages jumbled up in little round balls in the uh, body. And it could be so many places. Uh, it can involve not only the lungs, which are classic, but the liver, the eyes, the parotid gland, the liver, the spleen, the stomach, um, the lymph nodes. Um, it can uh, present uh, with these lymph nodes that look like cancer or enlargement of the liver that's worrisome for cancer. But in fact, when you do the biopsy, you see these non-caseating granulomas, which are opposite to caseating granulomas, which you see in tuberculosis. And not too similar, not too dissimilar to um, Classic cases of Crohn's disease where you see granulomas, non-caseating granulomas. A uh, number of cells are increased, um, and they're associated with HLA changes. Uh, suggested that certain populations, um, and, and of course in, in America, it's classically in African Americans uh, as a higher incidence, but I see it in all races. But the CD4 cells are increased. And let's recall that CD4 cells um, can be regulated by low-dose naltrexone uh, with the effect on the endorphins. So memory cells are important to understand. So once the T cell becomes activated, 
it can go through this phase where it stays activated forever. And that's what's called the memory T cell. And so uh, this is a major problem with perpetuation of an autoimmune disorder. Uh, so again, there are certain interactions in the lung and the liver. And again, uh, maybe that's where um, the CD11A cells come into action. Next is uh, slide 13. So I suggested there was a genetic susceptibility, which uh, plays into many things, of course, and the likelihood of getting a disease is directly related to what your makeup is. And then somehow there's some exposure to antigens, whether it's due to the uh, person breathing in something or somehow a relationship to uh, antigens in the gut that leads to activating macrophages. T cells then uh, continue to be activated and uh, T cells will present the uh, antigen um, uh, with the macrophage, and that's where the problem begins, and then it continues to activate the macrophages, which increase the uh, granulomas and the size of the organs involved. As mentioned, uh, the classic biopsy finding in Crohn's disease is a non-caseating granuloma, and again, in each of these conditions, unregulated T-cell activity is a major problem. And then I just want to reflect that, of course, we have uh, now uh, six studies of low-dose naltrexone in Crohn's disease showing efficacy. So one would say, well, if it works there, why not in sarcoidosis? And that's how it actually led uh, to me feeling uh, somewhat liberal in offering treatment to my first patient, who's shown on the next slide. So case one is an Afro-American, African-American female who suffered very severely uh, years ago with uh, lymph nodes around the throat, um, she compressed her trachea, she needed a tracheostomy, and then she needed laser treatments to open things up, and ultimately she got better. But then in the last 10 years or so, she was uh, suffering from severe fatigue, recurrent bouts of parotitis, inflammation in the parotid gland. She had this painful rash on her face that she described as a hot poker, and uh, with low-dose minocycline, it treated and prevented, but she could never get off the drug. And then uh, a CAT scan was done to follow up uh, on some findings, and um, lo and behold, the liver was enlarged, and she had holes in her spleen. And she was referred to me by her internist thinking that this might be cancer. And what could we do about it? So 
Um, in fact, when you look back at her history, um, uh, four years before, she had a hole in her spleen. And then, on its own, in time, increased to multiple um, decreased density nodules in the spleen. Um, and these are about the same comparison in terms of the spleen cut through the uh, CAT scan. There's a little slice change because of the way she was lying, but nonetheless, this is a reasonable uh, comparison, and it shows the progression on its own. But a long progression, which would make it extremely unlikely for this to be a cancer. And so when she saw me uh, one year later, um, I felt comfortable offering her therapy, and I started off with my usual dosing of low-dose naltrexone at one milligram a day and gradually increased it. Um, a month later, she was feeling less nervous, had less fatigue, and she decided to stop the minocycline on her own. Um, she was increased to 4.5 um, over the two months, which is thought to be the best anti-inflammatory dose. And then she was followed uh, in clinic she had less shortness of breath, dyspnea on exertion, and more energy. And then, as I'll show you, her CAT scan showed progressive improvement. So let's look at that. So in July, remember, I started treating her in December 2015. Sorry, uh, February 2015. Um, so five months later, the naltrexone decreased many of the little um, areas of involvement in the spleen. And then five months later or 10 months after the uh, initiation of low-dose naltrexone, it was virtually normal. I think you can see a very slight color change uh, in um, the top of the spleen, but all the other lesions are gone and it's a actually dramatic improvement. So we've been following her, and she continues to do well. Um, so she's been seen through 2018, stays on the naltrexone, no more skin rash, no more fatigue, and um, she's done extremely well. So in uh, other cuts, just to compare, um, st starting before starting therapy, we see different parts of the spleen lower down, seeing numerous defects in the spleen, and then after 10 months, it's normal. And then the other interesting thing is looking at her liver. So on the left, you see enlarged liver and compression of the veins, so the vascular structures are compressed, and then you look at the liver on the right on December 12, uh, December 2015, we see good vasculature, much more contrast is showing the vasculature, suggesting shrinkage of the uh, congested spleen liver. And the spleen's better, 
and her health is better, which was exciting. This led to offering this to women, uh, again, African-American female, with a very prolonged uh, history of pulmonary sarcoidosis, 26 years. For the last two years, she's been on home oxygen all day long, all night long, two liters. And she would have shortness of breath, at rest, and a dry cough. She was offered um, LDN because she had a long period of um, prednisone um, that the doctor worried she couldn't get off of, and he learned about low-dose naltrexone from me. So he referred her, and um, she was on 20 prednisone, started the low-dose naltrexone a month later. Um, there was no change immediately, um, and um, in, but by two months, she noticed less fatigue, less shortness of breath. She took her oxygen off and only used it for vigorous activity, and the prednisone could be tapered off and stayed off uh, to date. The third case is a 35-year-old white male who had ventricular tachycardia. He actually had primary involvement of his heart and then some in his lung and lymph nodes with sarcoidosis. And this has been going on for a while. So um, he had been stuck on prednisone, just could not taper it down without getting more ventricular tachycardia and was on a moderately high dose. Um, so with respect to the uh, dosing of the naltrexone, it started and he was able to taper down. Uh, he learned that uh, sometimes uh, cannabis um, can be helpful in combining um, decreased uh, anti-inflammatory action with low-dose naltrexone. So he started CBD oil on his own. And the prednisone could drop could be dropped without having more ventricular tachycardia, so things stabilized. A follow-up um, showed that he was able to remain off prednisone for five months, but when he was followed up at Cleveland Clinic, uh, where he's normally uh, seeing his cardiologist, they did a CAT scan, and there was activity in his heart, so they decided to put him back on prednisone. So it showed that the LDN prednisone, but despite staying on it, it wasn't a perfect drug for him. Now, was this because it wasn't strong enough, or there were so many granulomas in the heart that it was just beyond what we could do because it was started late? that information we don't have. Finally, um, this is a, a patient who actually works for me. I see her on a regular basis. She has pulmonary sarcoidosis um, and um, MRI documented um, sarcoidosis in the hip joints and in the knees and in the parotid glands. 
And the uh, other interesting thing was just severe fatigue and brain fog. She's normally a very bright woman, um, but found um, the sarcoidosis was just dragging her down, and she just wasn't performing tasks well at work. So just recently, we started an LDN, and very rapidly, uh, she had a response of uh, just even one milligram. She told me uh, within a week, she was up um, cleaning up the house and being more active than she had in months. Her joints pains were less um, when she increased the milligram, and now she's up to 4.5. And yesterday, I actually talked to her, and she said she has absolutely no pain in the joints at all and is moving along great. So that's pretty exciting. So in general, um, I think this is really a, a great thing to offer. I actually shared my case report of the patient with lymphadenopathy Sponomegaly and hepatomegaly and the painful rash it was published in the Sarcoidosis Journal in November with a variety of pulmono pulmonologists and, and um, physicians who specialize and advertise that they specialize in sarcoidosis. And lo and behold, not yet have I had a consult or a referral from one of these doctors. So unfortunately, um, physicians are slow to change. And it really takes a somebody who's willing to think outside the box to being willing to prescribe something else to patients. But I think it's a good alternative to prednisone and immunomodulators. Um, and it's safe. Now, there are potential side effects. The um, percentages you see here are likely higher than we normally see um, in the current day dosing. What I'm doing uh, here is a 2009 study where I sent um, questionnaires to patients with irritable bowel syndrome. 67% uh, of the patients returned their questionnaires, so obviously less than 100%, and therefore the percentages probably are swayed towards patients who have developed symptoms. I also started off with higher doses and at night, so the predictability of uh, insomnia, anxiety, uh, and neurological um, side effects as shown uh, would be increased. Now what I'm doing and starting at a low dose, one milligram, gradually working up the dose during the day, and I uh, have found much better tolerance. LDN can give other symptoms, nausea, abdominal pain, diarrhea, anorexia. Um, exactly you know, how definite this is is not certain because, again, all these... Uh, percentages are in patients with irritable bowel who tend to have higher incidence of side effects from medications in general. So um, you are all here to learn about LDN 
And this is a grassroots movement, if you will. This is not sponsored by commercials on TV, uh, drug company money, drug company um, support. It's really just doctor teaching doctor. And I will have to say that in many years of uh, treatment, you know, 13 years of treating patients with LDN, always pleased and very happy with the responses I see. Obviously, no drugs 100% ever, but when you can take uh, inflammation away with a very inexpensive, safe medication, it's really a tremendous thing. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org.